Stir up, O Lord, the wills of your faithful people, that bringing forth in abundance the fruit of good works, they may be abundantly rewarded when our Savior Jesus Christ comes to restore all things, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from 1 Corinthians. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up and walk. 
but when you know that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We do sing your praises, Lord Jesus. We are thankful for you. Um, and as we gather together um, this morning in your name, uh, we remember your promise uh, to be with us. Pray that you would teach us, you would form us, you would make us more and more like you. And we pray all this in your precious name. Amen. If you haven't uh, seen the movie Babette's Feast, I would say uh, two things to you. First, I would say go see it, or I said that in the first service, go see it. Where are you going to go? Uh, rent it, uh, find a way to see it, um, download it, whatever you young people do these days to watch movies. Um, I really highly recommend uh, that movie. It's an older movie. It's subtitled. Don't let that keep you from watching it. It's a delightful movie. Uh, but the second thing I would say, even if you haven't seen the movie, perhaps you're familiar with it because it's one of those movies preachers love to talk about. Um, and so I was aware as I thought about it this week, I had to call Andine and check with her and try to figure out, have I talked about this recently? Did you talk about it? Because it's such a movie um, that captures so many powerful things about living out our faith and what it means to, to live um, as Christians. And so I'll quickly talk about a moment in, in the movie, but again, encourage you, uh, watch it um, and see it for yourself. Um, but as the title suggests, there is a feast that takes place in the movie uh, put on by this woman, Babette, and most of the people who come to the feast, I think it's a group of 12, uh, which probably may be a significant number um, uh, in that, um, but most of the people that come are part of this Christian sect that basically kind of makes a vow of austerity. And so there are people that are suspicious or wary of any sort of worldly indulgence, anything that would seem to be a worldly pleasure they want to avoid. That's sort of how they live out their faith. And so when they're invited to come to this feast, they say yes to be part of the feast because they love Babette and she is part of their community, but they decide among themselves that they will not enjoy the feast. They will go, but they won't um, uh, enjoy it, um, basically, because they don't want to be, again, worldly in their um, uh, indulgence of the feast. And they also make a vow to one another that they won't say anything about the meal. They'll eat it, but they won't give any compliments because, again, that would be encouraging um, indulgence. But when they come and they experience the meal, and it's, again, it's this amazing meal um, that you get to sort of see them enjoy, they can't hold back their joy. And so they keep their vow not to speak about the meal, but they begin to speak to one another words of encouragement and love, and suddenly there's like this healing that takes place in the midst of this dinner. And relationships that have been hurt are, are, are healed, and there's this redemptive of movement, this redemptive action that takes place as they feast together. So you can see why preachers love it, right? Especially maybe Anglican preachers, right? Because it tells us as we feast, there is healing. 
there is redemption in our feasting. There is redemption in our celebration. Right? Each week when we gather together the celebrant, um, and that's an important name, right? The person leading the, the liturgy today, I am the celebrant. You see that in your bulletin, right? The person in charge of the celebration, which is what this is, right? At, at the celebration of the Eucharist says, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us, right? And we respond, right? Hallelujah. Yeah, you can say it right now. So not in Lent. Get ready. Lent's coming eventually, right? So we say every week, we keep a feast. It is good to feast together. And we are keeping that feast because the Lord has redeemed us, right? It's, it's in remembrance of his redeeming, but it's also living in that redemption. We are experiencing that redemption and that redeeming work even as we participate in that feast. And so in the series we've been doing, we're coming near the end last week. Next week will be our last week as we're thinking about marks of those who live in the kingdom. What does it mean to belong in the, to the God's kingdom? How do we live that out? We're considering today that one of the marks of being a kingdom person is to be a person who celebrates. That should mark us as kingdom people. We are those who love celebration, who love festivity, and actually believe that celebration and festivity brings healing. It brings redemption. It makes us more and more like Jesus, who came and celebrated among us and who still celebrates uh, with us. And so I want to consider this call to celebration looking at our 1 Corinthians passage, in which we have um, just instructions about um, communion, about the taking of communion, about the celebration of communion. And basically, I want to consider those instructions and how that applies to our celebration of communion, but also how that applies just more generally and broadly to our celebration as people, as followers of Christ, as disciples. What can we learn here? And the first thing I would say is that our celebration is equalizing. What do I mean by that? Well, in our celebration, we celebrate that we are equal in the eyes of the Lord. But that actually was a problem that was lacking in the celebration of communion that was happening among the Corinthians in, in their church. Um, and again, we can learn from this. So this is Paul's word for the Corinthians. It's God's word for us as well. But we can see he is not happy with them. I don't know if you picked that up when you heard um, the reading. It's kind of subtle. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. He says in 17. And then in case I wasn't clear enough, at the end of that first paragraph, what does he say? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not commend you in this, right? This is not good. Why is he so upset? What's going on there? As best as we can tell, sort of understanding the context, when the Corinthian church came together to celebrate communion, it was part of a bigger feast. And so it may be that the whole meal was seen as communion, and maybe it ended with bread and wine, or they had the meal, and then they celebrated communion. But clearly, gathering together for a meal was part of their celebration. But what was happening when they gathered together for this meal is there were people in the church that had more financial resources who were more wealthy. Um, whatever their work was, it was probably fairly limited. Maybe they didn't work at all. So they could come at any time for the feast. So they would show up. They were ready for the feast. Probably this feast it was sort of like, you know, ancient potluck. They would bring their own food and wine with them. If you had a lot of resources, you could bring lots of food and wine. And so the impression we get is those with wealth would gather together. They'd enjoy the feast and then those with limited resources, those who had to work longer hours, those who did not have food and wine to bring, or at least not much in excess, they would show up and basically like come in to the end of a big feast. Basically, they would be left out. They wouldn't be included. I mean, apparently the feasting was such that some were even getting drunk, while others didn't have anything to eat. So the issue there isn't so much how they were celebrating, although that was a problem. The issue there was they were not celebrating in light of their equality in the Lord. They basically, the divisions that bring up, come up in so many ways in 1 Corinthians, in the Corinthian church, and you can see, you can hear Paul's exasperation. It's like, once again, you're divided. 
Once again, you're creating factions. Once again, you're failing to recognize that in Christ, you are one. You have equality in Christ. And so he says, this is not the Lord's Supper. I don't think he means you're not attempting to, you know, celebrate the Lord's Supper, that that's not your goal. I think that is their intention. But he's saying the way you're celebrating it is not consistent with the Lord. This is your supper, right? It's consistent with, you know, how you guys normally act. But in the Lord, you're one. That's the truth. That's the reality. And the way you're celebrating the Lord's Supper doesn't honor him. It's not the way the Lord acted. We can see that, can't we? And when we look at our gospel reading, right? Here we have, right, Jesus in his ministry, um, he makes it clear that he has the authority to forgive sins. And then we see him forgiving someone's sins. We see him calling Matthew a tax collector. Again, everything we know about tax collectors is that part of the job was basically being compromised in your ethics and, and lying to people. But he calls Matthew to follow him. Matthew leaves that life as a tax collector and becomes a disciple of Jesus. Right, he calls him away. He invites him to be part of you know, his work. And then what happens next? They have a feast. There's a party, and Matthew basically invites all of his tax collector friends, and they all gather with Jesus and have a big celebration. I mean, isn't that great? Right? He calls Matthew to follow him and then says, hey, let's have a party with all your friends. Those who have not turned away yet from their sin, they're invited. Right? Because Jesus wants them to see he has come for them. He's called them to righteousness. He can forgive their sins. And so that's the heart of our Lord, right? That all would know his redemption and that we would know as we receive that redemption that all the things that separate us are, are removed, right? You think about Paul in the book of Galatians saying, in Christ, right, there is neither male nor female, neither slave um, nor master, right? Neither Jew nor Gentile. He wasn't saying there still weren't men and women and there weren't still, you know, um, Gentiles and Jewish people. Of course there were, and he acknowledges that in his letters. He's saying those things that divide us that we look to to say, I am better than someone else, I am superior to someone else, those have been removed. There is a oneness. So yes, we're still men and women, but there is equality, complete equality in the Lord. And the Lord's Supper should represent that. And so that then affects, again, how we come to the Lord's Supper, right? We come in humility, we come recognizing, I'm not superior to anyone else here. I, like all of us, have a need. I need the Lord's grace. I need his forgiveness. I come as someone to the table who needs the bread and the wine, who needs a new life, that comes from Jesus. And so we acknowledge that equality, but then it affects how do we celebrate in the world, right? How does that affect our grander celebrations? So I shouldn't say grander. There's no grander celebration than coming at the table, but the rest of our celebrations, right? How does that celebrate, a lo- how does that affect a life of celebration? And basically we say, as we celebrate, one of the things we're celebrating is the, the oneness, the equality, the lack of superiority that we learn from in Jesus, And sometimes, actually, celebration can actually grow out of, sort of in a worldly way, out of a sense of superiority, right? We're celebrating that we're better than others, right? We're celebrating that we have what others don't have, right? As Christians, we just say, no, right? That's not the case. In our celebration, we are celebrating the value of all people. So as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, often celebrations do focus on limited number of peoples, right? If you go to um, a wedding, Right? The, the focus, right? you are celebrating the people getting married. And we have a few newlyweds here today. Praise God. So we had some recent weddings that have been so joyful. Right? And so it's good to celebrate um, uh, the two people getting married. But as Christians, we can say, even as I celebrate this marriage, I'm celebrating even a greater truth. Um, well, actually, a truth that marriage points to. I'm celebrating that in Christ, right, we're the bride of Christ. That we actually have union with Christ. We are actually invited to a great wedding feast, right? We have new life and we experience the love of Jesus. 
So we can celebrate on those getting married. We can focus on them, and we can also say, wow, that points to um, a greater celebration. And someone's birthday, right? We are celebrating the person that was born and celebrating their birthday, but we're also saying it's just good to be alive, that each person's birthday is valuable, that we can celebrate the gift of life, and that it's right to celebrate life. We celebrate a retirement. We are celebrating work as a gift. It's good to, good do, to do good work, and it's good to rest. And so there's always sort of the greater celebration that we can point to as Christians, and again, that we all get a share in in Christ. And so that oneness, that equality, actually enhances all of our celebration and can be a way that we look different in our celebration. We actually don't need to be superior to others to celebrate. We actually celebrate in humility and equality um, that we have in Jesus. Now, a question then that can come up, though, is if this grows out of communion, then why, as we celebrate communion, do we actually not invite some? Right? I mean, the way we say it at Church of the Cross is we say all those who have committed their lives to Christ and are baptized are welcome at this table. And yes, the message is if you have not committed your life to Christ, you shouldn't come to the table. And maybe that feels kind of, you know, coming against that message of equality. But that's where it's helpful to acknowledge, right, another aspect of celebration, which is that celebration is also proclamation. And then when we celebrate um, here at the table, when we celebrate as Christians, we are proclaiming something, right? Um, Paul gives uh, the correction to them. He says, this is not good. Then he reminds them, right there in that second paragraph on the bottom of page six, he reminds them, what is communion about? Why do we celebrate communion together? Well, we received it from the Lord. I received from the Lord. I passed on to you. Jesus instituted communion at the final Passover that he had uh, with his um, disciples, where he said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul reminds them, this comes from Jesus, right? He gave us the instructions. And then what does he say? Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. Celebrating communion, receiving together is a proclamation. I don't know when you think about our service and our celebration together, maybe you think, okay, the reading of God's word, the preaching of God's word, singing, that's proclamation, But receiving communion, like, that's kind of more just for us, right? I mean, that's where we receive, and that's kind of more of a contemplative time. And it is a contemplative time. I mean, Paul says, examine yourselves. And it is a time where we're receiving. But it's also actually a time where we're proclaiming. The proclamation doesn't stop at communion. Paul says, we are proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes again. And so when we say this is for those who have committed their lives to Christ, we are saying this is actually part of our mission as followers of Jesus. This is a way that we proclaim this truth. If you've not embraced this truth, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, it would be hypocritical to come to the table because how can you proclaim something you don't believe? Now, we ask, we'll also ask that people be baptized in our tradition, in many sacramental traditions. We want to acknowledge that the sacrament of baptism is coming into the church family, into the uh, mission of God, and the celebration of communion is continuing in that mission. Right? But when people say, I haven't been baptized, I want to take communion, I say, praise God, let's be baptized. Right? Let's get you baptized so that you can come. And be a part of that. Because that is part of our mission. Is part of our mission of proclamation is actually receiving the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Jesus. And so um, that proclamation, again, is so important. It's such a part of our mission that that's another reason Paul's so concerned about the divisive way in which they're receiving communion. Right? It, it both betrays their oneness and their unity, but also betrays the mission. If their mission is to show the world this is who Jesus is, right, then it really makes a difference in how they're receiving that communion and how they're treating one another. 
And so we have um, that challenging uh, passage there, beginning in verse 27, at the top of page 7 of your bulletin, where he gives pretty strong warnings right, and tells them, examine yourself, right? Sometimes I think people read that and it makes them fearful to take communion. I don't think we should be fearful, but yes, we should confess and acknowledge um, our need for the Lord. We should acknowledge um, our community as we do so. And he tells them, verse 28 or 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Then verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Right? Sobering words. He's saying you've experienced judgment, actually judgment in your midst, right? And some have even gotten sick and died because you're not discerning the body when you eat and drink, when you come and celebrate communion together. So that brings up a big question then. What does discerning the body mean, right? If that's what we're supposed to do, we better do that. Well, some actually would say discerning the body, especially in light of the fact that it just said in verse 27, concerning the body and blood of the Lord, that that's discerning the Lord's presence, right? The, the reality um, of um, receiving from the Lord when you come uh, to communion. And obviously, depending on various theological views, there's different understandings of what it means to discern the Lord's presence as we um, receive communion. But someone emphasized that in discerning the body. Others would say, no, no, discerning the body is about that they are the body of Christ. It's discerning the reality of their oneness, right? Because that's the, the emphasis here in this passage. They are one, they're one body, many members, right? Which Paul will talk about more in the next passage in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. And so the emphasis is on discerning your identity as a member of Christ's body. Now, my answer um, to that is which one is? It's both, Right? And that's not just because Anglicans love to say both all the time and we just love to, to have it all. Uh, but I also say that because of what Paul says in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Because he talks about communion in chapter 10 as well. And there he's addressing actually that some in the Corinthian church are participating in idol worship. They're going to feasts, pagan feasts, where you know the food is offered to the idols and then is eaten. And they're thinking, oh, I can do that. And he's saying, no, if you're receiving food, if you're eating food as part of a pagan worship service you're actually participating in the work of demons. He's saying there is a spiritual power, an evil spiritual power that you're participating in. And that's a problem, right? You cannot do that as someone who belongs to Christ. That's bad for you. And again, it's a wrong proclamation. But then um, he says this right after um, that correction of them. He says, but when you receive communion, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So he's speaking there of when, you know, there's negative spiritual power when you participate in this idol worship, but when you participate in communion, there's a very participation in Christ. You're participating in the blood of Christ. You're participating in the body of Christ. Now again, different sort of church traditions have explained that in different ways, but I think we can say there is a spiritual participation in the Lord. There is something we receive, and there's a way in which God works in us and through us as we receive from him. We are receiving, again, the body and blood of Jesus, however we understand that. But there's a reception, there's a participation. And so, right, when we hear discerning the body, I would say, well, it certainly makes sense that that's what we need to discern, that reality that Christ is at work here. But right after that, in chapter 10, in the very next verse, he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. So right after talking about participating in the body of Christ, the presence of Jesus, he says, we're one body. We are the body of Christ. Our unity matters. So when I say both, I actually think we can answer both because it's so clearly a both in chapter 10. It makes sense in 11. He's continuing that theme. Recognize the body. That Jesus is his work, 
Recognize the body, discern the body, that we are one. And that's part of our proclamation. We are proclaiming Jesus is at work, and he's at work through his church, through his body. That's us. And so in, in, even in our, you know, the word communion, right, we are in community together. And in participating together, right, we are proclaiming. And part of our proclamation is our oneness. And so as we consider that, that our celebration of communion is a proclamation, then we can again apply that to our celebration in general can be a proclamation. As we just celebrate what is good, as we celebrate one another, as we celebrate weddings, as we celebrate birthdays, as we celebrate being together, that's a proclamation. That we are saying there is joy in life. There are things to celebrate. We read a book for the Crossreads uh, book um, last month in October. Um, a number of folks participated in that. It was a book about festivity. Uh, it was a great book, um, uh, small but very dense. Um, we had a great discussion about it. And Tyler um, Holly, who uh, led that discussion, uh, pointed out that one of the reasons he wanted us to read that book is because he said, I th- feel like one of the most powerful ways that Christians can bear witness to Christ, to the world, is to be people who celebrate well, to be people who are festive. It just stuck with me. I just thought, how good it would be, right, if we told someone, right, and, you know, when you're meeting, it's like, well, I'm a Christian. They say, oh, yeah, Christians, you guys are the festive people, right? Like, I know all about Christians. They love to celebrate. Like, wouldn't that be great if we were known <laughs> for that, right? I mean, and we can be, right, because there's so much to celebrate. We can be people who are marked by celebration and festivity. Now, unfortunately, sometimes, actually, what people have gotten the impression of, oh, Christians, those are the ones who pretend to celebrate because they can't handle, like, how bad things are, right? And so when something bad happens, you know, Christians are one that's, that say, it's God's will, you know, don't be sad, whatever you do. I don't actually think that's very accurate, but I think sometimes people have that impression. I think sometimes they have that impression because actually we do say we can have joy in the midst of sorrow. We, we sing about that, right? And we'll, we'll sing about it again as we continue in the service, right? That there is a reality that there is a joy we know in the Lord that goes deeper even than our sorrow, goes deeper even than the fallenness and the pain of this world. And so we do celebrate. We celebrate all the time. Every week when we gather, we say it is right, it is good to give him thanks and praise. Right? And we have said that through the pandemic. We said that when there are only a few people here in the sanctuary and most were watching at home, we still said it is good to give him thanks and praise because it is good. Right? We've said that on Sundays where we are grieving the death of beloved members of our church. We've said it on days where we feel like our whole world is falling apart because we can always say it. It is always true. It is good to give thanks and praise to our God. It is always good. And that's a wild message, right? That's a surprising message. But when we are celebrating that, we are celebrating reality. We are celebrating truth. And that's, again, a final kind of contrast I want to make you know, between how we often maybe think of celebration and how different it is for us who are in Christ. Right? And many times in the world, I don't think this is you know, being unfair, people will make it very clear they are celebrating in order to escape reality. Right? That's kind of what festivity is. Like, man, you know, I can't wait for the weekend so I can just get away from it all. So I can you know, you know, numb the pain through alcohol or through drugs or through just pretending I'm someone else or through throwing off all my inhibitions. Right? I want to escape from reality. We'd actually say, actually, true celebration happens as we root ourselves in reality. If there's anything we need to escape from, we need to escape from the lies and the illusion that we are tempted to believe and to live in the truth. That actually the Lord is redeeming creation, that he is at work, that there is a joy that goes even deeper than our sorrow. I believe that's a, a powerful witness, that our celebration actually is rooted in the truth of who God is. It's not just trying to make ourselves feel better. It's genuine hope. 
Um, and on uh, December 7th, just a couple weeks uh, from now, um, our family will remember um, the birthday um, of Molly and I's son, Bryce, um, who was uh, uh, born 21 years ago on December 7th. Um, he was uh, born with a genetic condition that made it um, impossible for him to live outside the womb for more than a, a few minutes. And so we only had a few minutes with him um, alive. Um, and uh, we had a uh, celebration of his life, right? All life matters. All life is right and good to celebrate. And so we had a service where we um, gave thanks uh, for Bryce and celebrated our hope in the resurrection. And the midwives, who were going to be the ones who would have delivered um, Bryce if, uh, um, if he hadn't had that condition, um, came uh, to that service. Um, delightful uh, women who we had gotten to know during Molly's pregnancy. Neither of them were Christians, um, but came to the service to really just support us. And a few weeks after that service, we met with them uh, just so they could check in to see how we were doing. They just cared about us. Um, and as we were talking with them, um, they said, well, we were thankful to be at that, at that service, but we're a little concerned um, that maybe you guys are trying to move too fast from your grief, that maybe you're not fully recognizing the grief you're feeling. And Molly and I were a little surprised when they said that because we were not having a hard time grieving. We were very much um, grieving um, at that moment. But we realized that when they saw the joy that we had in the resurrection of Jesus at that service, they kind of read it as, we're moving on, right? We don't have to be sad anymore. And so we tried to kind of explain to them, oh, no, we're very sad, and we're actually joyful. We actually want to celebrate our our son's life, and we'll see him again, right, in the resurrection. Uh, And uh, he will rise again, right, with Jesus, with all of us. And so uh, that was an opportunity to witness to them. Right? We can be grieving. I mean, 21 years later, I'm still crying um, about it. And we can have incredible joy. And again, may that be the message that we send as people who celebrate. Right? Our celebration is not light. It's not frivolous. It's actually deep and real and true. Let's pray for that. Lord, we pray that you will give us opportunities to proclaim your death until you come again. Opportunities here in our midst, opportunities out in our, our work and in the various places that you call us there would be those who proclaim. And Lord, may we proclaim through celebration. May we proclaim through festivity. Lord, I I pray um, for those who are grieving today, that they would know joy in the midst of their grief. I pray for those who perhaps feel nervous about celebrating, feel like, you know, it's almost bringing on um, uh, problems um, to, to celebrate too much, that they would know a celebration, again, that is rooted in you and your truth. Lord, we pray that we would Bring a joyful reality to those who are stuck in illusion and in lies. And Lord, may you continue to put to flight any lies that we are tempted to believe. And we uh, pray all this and ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.